so then the second time you almost died was also with a vehicle, no? Oh, yeah. That was with my 49 Ford. Story of the hot rod race with the Fords and Lincolns was setting the pace. That story is true, I'm here to say. I was driving that Model A. It's got a Lincoln motor and it's really souped up. That Model A body makes it look like a pup. It's got eight cylinders and uses them all. It's got overdrive, just won't stall. With a four barrel carb and a dual exhaust, with four living gears, you can really get lost. Got safety tubes, but I ain't scared. The brakes are good, tires fair. Welcome to episode two of the many near deaths of John Heisinga. John Heisinga is my father, and I've known him for all of my life and lots of his. Episode two takes place in 1959. This is 11 years after my father's family immigrated to Canada in 1948, where they lived on, worked on, and owned various farms throughout southern Ontario. They were there along with many other Dutch immigrant families who had fled a Europe that appeared like it was not going to recover post-World War II. Most of them, like my father's family, had had to give up almost everything in order to make this move. The Dutch government at the time had restrictions on how much money people could take out of the country with them. It was all in an effort to prevent the Netherlands from disintegrating. There were large Dutch communities throughout Ontario and Michigan, complete with Christian Reformed churches and intact language. In my father's house, speaking English was definitely forbidden. Speaking Dutch was even forbidden. In the house, everybody spoke Fries or risked the wrath of the adults. So I had... um, How old were you? I was working. I was 19. Okay. I was working as a mechanic, apprentice mechanic, and I had just gotten a 49 Ford. And, and this, 49 this was in Ontario. Sorry to interrupt. This was in Ontario. Okay. This 49 Ford, we dolled it all up. Like, you strip all the chrome off, and then you paint it flat black. So oh. it has kind of a menacing <laughs> macho air about it. And... And... Uh, had straight pipes on it so that <laughs> when you pushed on the throttle, it sounded like you were just on the track in Indianapolis. I mean, loud. I mean, it would make, it would reverberate the walls of the buildings on the street. It was illegal. But uh, uh, there was a lever you could pull that shunted it into the regular exhaust system with muffler. So, uh, and and it was the fastest car known as in our church as the fastest car east of Simcoe. <laughs> and, and where is where is Simcoe? Well, that was the town that was about fifteen miles away. It was West. a bigger town. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and it was also where I worked. So ah. so this car that would really go. So. And of course, so this is my 49 Ford. I was so proud of it. So then I'm at work. I'm working in Jarvis at a service station. And the guy, I'm supposed to be their mechanic, their apprentice mechanic. So my boss, the Dutch guy, he asks me 
to take his very, very pregnant wife to visit her <laughs> sister. So, I, I in in to, your car. Yeah, of course. I'm just going to break in here for a second. I'm laughing because of all the available humans on the planet to take a very pregnant woman to the hospital. My 19-year-old father in his souped-up 49 Ford is probably not the top of the most responsible citizen's choice. It's not for lack of great intention or lack of a sense of responsibility for fellow humans, but there's something about the way my father approaches the world with a deep disbelief in his own mortality that lends him to take chances and land in situations that others just might not find themselves in. So I put his very pregnant wife in the front seat of my 49 Ford, and we room, 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 and she likes that just fine, and uh, all the way to her sister's place, which is about 15 miles away. Okay. So I drop her off. And then when I go back, I take a shortcut, and I'm on a dirt road, and I'm probably going about 70 miles an hour. And what happens is you go up a long hill, and the sun is coming up. I'm driving directly. The sun is in my eyes. I I can see the road, but I can't really see anything else. What I don't see is the stop sign. There's a stop sign for Cockshot Road. Okay. So I see the stop sign, but now I'm going 70 miles an hour, and the road is like a half a city block away, and so I hit the brakes, and I come screeching across Cockshot Road, and just as I enter Cockshot Road, I see a truck, a big, heavy truck, and, and at where the intersection is, it's at the bottom of a very, very long hill. So this truck is going like 70 miles an hour, and it's big. And the last thing I remember is I figure, holy smokes, I slammed that car into second gear, I hit the gas, and I felt it kind of jump forward, and that was it. And so the truck... So you were trying to to um, outrun the truck, like instead well, if of... if I hadn't braked, if I hadn't braked, I would have crossed that road before the truck arrived there. Uh. <laughs> but barely. I would have just cut right in front of it. Uh-huh. But I probably would have missed it. So the truck catches me just behind the driver's door. Oh, my God. And, and what happens is it spins that car like a top. It spins the car so hard that both back wheels came off big steel wheels, and the nuts were still on the axle. It had pulled those steel wheels right through the bolts that were holding it on. <laughs> you, can, you can't imagine the force it would take to do that. And so, and the truck skids down the road. I took the entire axle and the front wheels out from under it. And Wow. I mean, the collision, you're talking about both of us going 70 miles an hour. So uh, so the truck skidded along the road on its frame rails until it hit a bridge. That stopped us. Mm. However, oh, okay. my car 
got spun like that and then got airborne. My mother and I have often joked that my father's guardian angel must be the most exhausted being who has ever existed. And it ended up with the front bumper on top of the tombstone in the cemetery of the church. And uh, just a little country church. So that's where my car ended up. So now the front wheels, they tell me, are still spinning because the front of the car is jacked up. It's sitting on a tombstone. So then there's a bunch of boys, young, young guys, working in a field. There's about five or six of them. They come rushing down there. And they look and look and look, and they can't find a driver. And they look under the car, and they look everywhere. So finally, somebody notices some blood dripping out from underneath the left front fender. So then they feel up there, and sure enough, there's a body up there. Above, laying on the front tire, in the wheel well, under the front tire where you can't see it. So they take the wheel off, and then they get me out. Then they lay me on the grass right beside the road. And and I'm unconscious, and and there's blood everywhere, right? Because I had evidently, when I got thrown out, my first, I skidded along on my back. So all the skin on my back is gone. And, and so there's lots of blood. So they don't know what to do. So then along comes a car, and it stops. Well, it's a priest, Catholic priest. So he gets out, and he puts on his rosaries and everything else, and he gives me last rites. Just right there in the graveyard. Yeah. So everybody watching, giving me last rites, but all these boys, it turns out later on, were all kids from our church. So they're all Calvinists. They don't know anything about last rites, but nevertheless, (laughs) they told me that's what he did. So then another car comes. Well, this time it's a doctor. So the doctor comes, and he checks me out very briefly, and he says, okay, let's get him in my car, and I'm going to take him to the hospital because I don't know how, if, how badly he's hurt. So they put me in the back of this car, and it was a brand-new 59 Buick. So then he takes one of the farm kids, and he has him sit on the seat beside me so that I don't roll off. So I come to when I come to and I right away realize I'm in a car that's moving really fast because cars, when they go like 90 miles an hour, at least those cars, you get kind of a floaty feeling to them. So that's where it is. And he's going 100 miles an hour. And so then I look up and there is uh, Ralph Dirksma. He's sitting there right there. And I say, oh, hello, Ralph. And his mouth drops wide open because he hadn't recognized me or the car. So then they get me to the hospital. And then my arm is a mess because the battery acid ate it, ate the skin away. And uh, they have to put my ears back on because uh, both of my ears got severed, except they're still dangling by a little piece of skin. 
because when you put your head up inside that wheel well, there's not enough room. There's enough room for the head, but not for the ears. So, so then they, uh, they patch me all back up. And it's mostly superficial injuries. There are no internal injuries. There's no broken bones. And basically, there's nothing wrong with me. So then they... Okay. I have a couple of questions. Yeah. How did you know what kind of car the doctor was driving? Honey, you know what? If we saw a car from a city block away, we knew what it was. Everybody, all the boys knew that. You only had to catch a glimpse and you knew that it was a 51 Ford or or 55 Chevy or or or, or so on. So so I, I knew right away. Since I had to even a briefest look. And you could see the front or the back or the tail light or the dashboard would tell you right away which car it was. Okay. So Okay, question number two. How did how did you get from inside your vehicle into the wheel well? Okay, I thought about that a lot. Now, had I not been thrown out, the the force of that truck hitting behind the back door was so great that it pulled the roof down. And the roof pulled the steering wheel off the dashboard and drove it right through the front seat. So if I had been sitting in that front seat, I wouldn't have just been pinioned by the steering wheel, but the steering wheel would have just cut me in half. So I was good I got thrown out. However, when I'm thrown out, I'm obviously up in the air, and so is the car. And so what happens is those wheels... As long as they're up in the air, those wheels are still spinning like crazy, and the front wheels at any rate. And what happened is that at some point, I get thrown up and I connect with that spinning wheel, which grabs me and slams me up into the fender wall. Okay, so there was a minor miracle of physics that occurred when nobody was watching. Yes, that's right. That you were airborne, the car was airborne, yeah. you collided with the wheel, got sucked yeah. up into the thing, and then the car came to rest on this headstone. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so before I move to my next question, <laughs> I just yeah. want to mention out loud that you have used this story as a reason to not wear seatbelts in your life. No, there were no, oh, well, that's true. But, I mean, I only used that because I didn't want to wear seatbelts, so that was just my <laughs> excuse. And the excuse in this case was indeed uh, true. But in 99, 90, in 99% of the car accidents, the seatbelt actually is good for you. I want to point out here that that last admission by my father is something that I'm remarkably proud of him for and represents an incredible amount of growth. 
not always. It can also, it can kill you. There's people who have died in cars that caught fire because they couldn't get their seatbelt loose. All right. Next question. Where is the water? Was it a water truck, you said? No, it was a truck loaded with green peas. <laughs> and it was really loaded. Now, green peas is really, really heavy. <laughs> so that truck was a fully loaded truck going 75 miles an hour. And that's what hit me. And and were they fresh or frozen peas? Fresh. Okay. And where was the driver? What happened to him? Nothing. He was okay. But, but uh, didn't he... All he did. Didn't he wonder, like, what happened to the guy in that other car? Was he at the crime scene? Or not crime scene. Was he at the accident scene? Oh, yeah. He helped look for the driver. And they couldn't oh, find okay. Yeah. Okay. So... So he was fine. So they get me to the hospital, and uh, there was a stone in my side that made a little hole, and uh, lots of skin missing. And uh, my arm, the acid had really eaten away my arm. So they fix all that, and then they put me away in in a room. So then I wake up the next day, and I feel kind of okay. I don't feel that bad. I want to go home. And they laugh and they say, oh, no, you can't go home. Okay. So then that's when the nurse wants to know if I've had a bowel movement. And I've no idea what she's talking about. She's just a young thing. Oh, I said, I don't know what they're talking about. So she gets all embarrassed and she goes away. And an old nurse comes along and she says, she wants to know if you took it, if you had a shit. Well, I was so offended. I thought that was just none of their business. None. <laughs> so I couldn't imagine asking somebody a question like that. And so I said, no. And so, so, then, so then the next day or that evening, they give me medicine. And I say, what is it? Okay, I won't take it unless you tell me what it is. Well, it's a, uh, 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 what's it called? Uh, a laxative. <laughs> it's a laxative. Well, I knew what laxatives were. So I said, okay. So they didn't think I could walk, but I could. So then I go to the toilet, and I dump the laxative down there. <laughs> then the next morning, they asked me, did you have a bowel movement? And I say, no. <laughs> so then they give me more laxatives. So then I dump it down the toilet. So this goes on for about three days. And then Jack Kramer comes to the hospital to visit me. And, and Jack so Kramer talks, is, is your your uh, best friend slash partner in crime. Oh, yeah. He's my buddy. So Jack says, he tells me all about what the Ford looked like. And it's <laughs> totally beyond hope. Even we can't fix it. It's just beyond hope. Okay. So then I said to Jack, I says, you know what? You've got to get me out of here. They don't want to let me go. Every morning I tell them I want to go home. And they say, no, you can't go home. And, and I said, so, so get me out of here. And so, so he says, okay, well. And I said, yeah, but they took all my clothes. 
So then he goes to the Sally Ann, he buys a shirt and a pair of pants, and, uh, and a pair of socks. Sally Ann is a phrase we use in Canada to talk about the Salvation Army thrift store. And then I get dressed and I stay in bed, and as soon as the coast is clear, we head out of there. <laughs> so then, we and Jack has a new car. It's a 49 Merc, a Mercury. And it's all painted flat black, and it's had all the chrome taken off, and it's a convertible, and it has an Oldsmobile motor, which means it's faster than my 49 Ford could have ever been. So we get down the highway, and uh, we're between Jarvis and our place, which is six miles of open highway. So then we got to try this thing out. We wind it out to 120 mile an hour or something like that. And it's got straight pipes. <laughs> and then there's a car ahead of us. But meanwhile, we're going so fast, and we just roar by, and Jack has his pedal to the metal. So it is just this, this unbelievable shriek, like a fighter jet <laughs> passing you in the other <laughs> Well, as we go by, I see it's my dad and my mom. <laughs> And so, so I immediately ducked down and I do not want them to see me. So, so, so then I said to Jack, stop on it. We got to get home and you've got to get me out, 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 out to the house. And then you go, you got to be out of here before my parents show up. Because they're going to be. And so, so then I, I, I get out of the car and Jack takes off and I hobble into the house. And I go into my bed, and and about ten minutes, five minutes later, my dad comes in, and he slams open the door, and he is so pissed off. They saw me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, so then, uh, and then of course. They're upset, too, because the hospital's been calling and calling, and we disappeared, and what happened, and they don't know, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and, and they're on my phone, and they're talking about bowel movements, and my dad doesn't know what bowel movements are, and it's just mass confusion. So finally, they get it sorted out, and, and what happens is that I don't want to go back to the hospital, and so, so finally they agree I can stay home, providing... I tell them I had bowel movements. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I have them every day. <laughs> and so, and so no, that was kind of the end of the story. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you can join us for the next episode of The Many Near Deaths of John Heisinger. <laughs>